Hello, thanks uh, for joining us listeners and hello mom, nice to see you again. Hi David, nice to see you too. So now we're in chapters 49 <clears throat> to 60, right? The second part of part two. So we're right in the middle of the book actually. Um, and um, yeah, so I'll say off the top that again, I did sort of, I'm definitely struggling with India more than I have in the past. Um, me, uh, me is, I just wanna interject here and say, I am as well. And to me, it's interesting. What came to mind when I was reading it was actually, I feel like to put it frankly, I feel more enlightened than the author of this book, right? So she's exploring and she's trying to find her way of explaining her experiences and stuff. And it actually, I, when I was reading this section, I felt similar to when I've talked with some rabbis and like they have their explanation for these phenomenon, these experiences. And I disagree. I think I have more full of an understanding of myself and these explanations. So that's sort of the, I think, why I, uh, I don't feel connected to this. Whereas before I really felt connected to it. And I think many people who don't feel connected to it is because they're on the other side of it. Mm -hmm. So now I'm just kind of reading this more so of this is one person's exploration of things and these things and her view of it. But what value can I get from her experience, even if I don't necessarily agree with her framing of what's going on? Um, I, I, I agree with you. I know that when I read it and thinking about where I was in my life at that point, it opened a lot of doors for me that helped me to explore um, where I wanted to go to become more of a complete me. Mm -hmm. And so it was really great that way. Um, however, because of the work I've done up until this point, I also feel that some of it, I'm, I don't know if redundant is the right word mm -hmm. or uh, simplistic maybe for where I am right now in my learning. And my and my work, um, I was taking I, yeah. I was taking out of it more like, for instance, in chapter forty nine, when she speaks about Buddha and Buddha's philosophy, I did make a note of one little piece of that, um, more how it relates to like people in general being able to appreciate and learn from different types of philosophies or religious beliefs or whatever you want to call them. Um, but I'm not fine. I wasn't able to really um, integrate as much to this. Yeah, point. I, and I think, you know, reading this now, I would really highlight to listeners that I think it's a, it's a good book for like an initial exposure, let's say, but it's not yes. like this is something, you know, I sort of studied this for a while, but it was more a psychological thing for me than a spiritual, like, you know, it's hard to de deconstruct, but it wasn't a philosophical thing. It was a psychological thing. How does she treat herself? What type of relationship should I aim to have? That doesn't mean all of her explanations of what's going on are valid, but it's really about that honest, uh, honest conversation with herself that, oh, wow, there's a whole way I can treat myself that I wasn't aware of, right. um, or I hadn't learned anywhere. And so that's kind of the deepest part I get out of this rather than yeah the specifics of her view of the yoga tradition and the buddha tradition and that right. kind of stuff and a word that just came to mind for me was deconstructing this is helping her to deconstruct everything she believed she was until yeah. this point 
And I think for people who are starting to explore who they are, this is a great book for that because it makes it, it's very approachable in the way that it's written. So it's, it's um, it's very honest and it's, and Elizabeth isn't talking at you. She's explaining to you. Yeah. And I think that's a really important point. Like, I don't know if I've mentioned on this uh, series before, but like for me, it was like the first part of my journey was, yeah, deconstructing. I had to tear down what I thought I was, mm -hmm. then see, okay, what's left? Who am I? Then start to build it up and then engage with the world, right? And so this is very much, I think this whole book is towards the end in Indonesia, we start to get a reconstruction. But mm -hmm. definitely at this point, it's just been deconstruction. It's just been uh, tearing stuff down, which I think like, but in a positive way, right? right. Um, so in, in this chapter, we start on chapter 49 and I have quite a few notes just from this chapter because I think it sort of sets a, a, a whole framework for moving forward. It's again, her kind of exploration of why she is the way she is, how she thinks about it. And so first, you know, what really resonated with me was her like panic at age 10. How am I turning 10, right? And these like this yeah. existential crisis from a young age. Um, she's thinking about death, uh, death. She's living at high speed. She split herself up into a million pieces because she wanted to get everything, right? Um, and that's very much that resonates with me. And it also, there's a quote, I think it's from, you know, some Buddhist person that's like, you know, people live as if they're never going to die and then die having never really lived. And I think right. it's because they're never in the moment. They're never living their life because they're thinking, oh, I have so much I have to get done. I have so much I have to do and accomplish. Um, and she says one thing that really resonates with me is just wanting to hit stop, wishing there was like a button that was stop, that that paused life. And what's really interesting, jumping to the end of this chapter like there is a point where she says, what happens if I did stop? If I ceased participation in the world and just watched it for a little bit? And that's what was so transformative to me is I had all of these stories about how I had to do this for this person, how I had to do these things and how I was so plugged in and I owed everyone so much that I was always doing everything and I couldn't stop. God forbid I took one week off and I, I just kind of ripped myself out. I was very fortunate that I could basically take two years away from everyone um, and just figuring out what I was about. But it's so freeing to know that, okay, you don't want to cease your life, but most of what most people consider their life, they, they can stop and the world doesn't collapse without them. And I think that's what people fear. And so that's really interesting to me. It is. And, you know, there's one thing I want to share from the book, but before we go to that, um, there's two things that come to mind for me. Fear of missing out. We live in a society right now where people are so afraid of not being involved and missing out. Um, and the other thing is, one of the things I started asking myself as I was on my journey is what's the worst thing that can happen? And when I started asking myself, what's the worst thing that can happen, whether it was related to work or my relationships or even myself, if I wanted to do something and I couldn't do it, or I was feeling like I was losing control, um, I started to realize that the worst thing that can happen is not in any way 
as bad as what I was telling myself it would be. The minute I slowed down and I actually said to myself, what's the worst thing that can happen? And so, you know, um, I have a quote, I have part of the book here. It says, life, if you keep chasing it so hard, will drive you to death. And it's true. We're on so many people in our society, society in North America teaches us to be on the fast track. We're quick, we're in a hurry to do everything. We're in a hurry to accomplish everything. And then we end up not losing that appreciation of what we've actually done. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, Richard, uh, she, she always refers to Richard and it said, at some point you have to stop because it won't. You have to admit that you can't catch it, that you're not supposed to catch it. At some point, you got to let go and sit still and allow contentment to come to you. Because we're so busy chasing the unknown, chasing the success, chasing all these different things, that because we can't just sit with ourselves and sit with the moment, so much just passes us by. Yeah, and I think, you know, what people view as contentment varies. And I, you know, I don't want to get too into that and whether it's even possible or whatever, but the whole idea is you have to start with being, let's say, satisfied with yourself. Absolutely. With yourself as a person, right? And so there's this idea in objectivism that um, you you create your own soul and the, the most important things are your reason, purpose and self-esteem. And those are the things you need to create before anything else. Who am I and how do I want to be? And if that is what you can focus on and that is what you exists, then you're less concerned about grabbing all of these things that need to fill those holes that you don't have self-esteem. So what, oh, let me make enough money to buy this car. I need this job or whatever. And you, you start from a different place. You start from, I, you're, let's say I'm full, but then I can still grow, right? Versus I'm empty. Let me find stuff to fill myself up with. Well, and I think when you're full, you start layering on as opposed to putting in. Right. Right. And when you and can layer on, you start to realize you don't need as much. And the layering becomes a, it's like if you think about a flower and the well, center of the flower with all the petals, right? The layering on becomes the petals, the beautiful part that cloaks the center of the flower. I think that's a really nice way to put it. And also um, the thing is, if it's a layer, if it's a petal and you lose one, it's not the biggest deal because exactly. you know you can grow a new one. But exactly. if it's filling in and it's taken away, now you're empty, you're hollow. You're, exactly. That's, that's a big thing. Um, um, if we can just talk again for a minute, because there's this one piece here that I really want to share. Um, now I have a bunch from this same chapter. Letting go. We've talked about letting go. We've talked about the fear of letting go. We've talked about how it, you know, meditation can help you to let go. We've talked about it in so many ways. And, um, you know, one of the things is letting go, of course, is a scary enterprise for those of us who believe that the world revolves only because it has a handle on the top of it, which we personally turn. And that if we were to drop this handle for even a moment, that would be the end of the universe. But try dropping it. This is the message I'm getting. Sit quietly for now and cease your relentless participation. 
Watch right. what happens, right? Go ahead, David. And I think it's, again, that comes to cease participation, which I mentioned earlier, right? Like, yep. because people think that they owe the world everything. And if they don't have their tentacles and everything, if they're not making sure the world runs the way it should, the world will fall the, apart. The, and everyone, the way they want it to it, the way they want it to. Right. And, and so it's just like, let all of that go, you know, look in the mirror, focus on yourself, start at home. And like, you'll find very quickly that the world doesn't fall apart without you in it. The, um, and it's, it's an interesting, it's mm -hmm. an interesting thing. Um, it is. Definitely. I want to, you know, from other parts of this chapter, I think it's important to highlight this, the, the dairy farmer from Ireland and his father, she's talking about how like, you know, mm -hmm. she and I had this experience as well. I searched frantically for contentment and I approached contentment. I approached fulfillment in the same way I approached everything else, which is not the proper way. Um, but, you know, he talks about his father and it's, um, duh, this meditation stuff, it's crucial for serenity and you have, to, and teaches you to have a quiet mind. And the dad responds, I have a quiet mind already right? Some people do have this more quiet mm -hmm. mind and this natural approach to things. But a lot of us, and I think particularly more so now, like our minds are all over the place. It's very hard to quiet our minds. And so I think that's really important. But on the flip side, like I also really like the quote, an unexamined life is not worth living, right? You don't want to never use your mind, right? You want it to be Absolutely. quiet, but in your control. And you want to be able to examine your life, think about your life and make sure you're becoming the person you want to be. Because many people don't examine their life, not because they're quiet. I mean, there are some people who just don't think and that's not proper, right? But there are many people who don't examine their life because they're too busy worrying about everyone else, right? Or they're, they're afraid. Again, they're afraid. Yeah. They're afraid of what they're going to find. One of the words that I really, I love this word is reflection. I'm always reflecting. And I, and if we can look at it as, because reflection is a beautiful thing. You see the reflection of the sunshine. You see the reflection of yourself in the mirror, right? You see the reflection of yourself and people that you love, who you choose to bring, who, who come towards you. And, you know, they say your vibe creates your tribe. Well, that's a reflection of you, right? And so if, if, if we could use the word reflection more as a blanket term for discovering our, our own self, maybe it would be less, less of a, a, a scary word. It's a less scary word, right? Because if we ask people to reflect, reflect on that rather than think, because then when you use the word think, it tends to be almost like you think about teachers telling you to think and your parents telling you to think and who are you to tell me what to think and that kind of thing, right? Right, whereas I think it's more important to take back that word thinking because yeah, people's relationship with quote thinking is being told what to think. Right. That's not thinking, that's memorizing. People, most people don't actually know how to think. Most people don't actually know how to understand and decide for themselves and weigh this thing or that thing because that should be taught in schools that should be encouraged in workplaces that should be the central part of our life but it's not 
And so no. people do have that association of, yeah, well, what do you mean? Oh, these, these two, what do David and Linda know? They're telling me what to think. No, we're asking you to try thinking, <laughs> try thinking about these things. That's the way I, I use it. And I think of it, right? Because I agree, many people have the wrong view of what quote thinking is. And that's why I like the word reflecting, because when I'm reflecting, I'm thinking. So for people who are fearful of thinking and being told what to do, they can start reflecting and they begin thinking. Right. But thinking is reflecting is like one way you can think, right? There's also you can think about new things that aren't necessarily. Oh, absolutely. Right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, and so now, you know, jumping into uh, chapter 50, I think this is a really interesting thing. So she's, she gets mad at herself because she notices that there's only really a few things on her mind here, right? And I think it's a very relatable thing, but she's, you know, she asks, what is she in eighth grade? She's still thinking about an ex-boyfriend out of all <laughs> of the existential issues there that she could think about. Like it's an ex-boyfriend that she's worried about. And I have bolded here, love. Well, can can we just, oh, sorry. There's the word that jumped out to me and I highlighted that one word, brooding. Yeah. Right? She's brooding. And this whole chapter is about her brooding. And so yeah. I just wanted to highlight that word because I think it's something that all of everybody who's listening to this can really relate to because we've all been in those moments where we're brooding. Right. And I think it comes up to what is she brooding about most? Two things, love and control. And right. I think those two things, that's they're, they're often for me, they're at odds or they were struggling because I couldn't control uh, the person I was pursuing, right? And so the one realm I had no control is when I'm trying to engage with another person that I care about deeply. And so, of course, she couldn't control what happened with David. She couldn't just like make it work out because he's a whole other person with free right. will, right? And so it's really interesting that those two things are my experience of what I brood over, her experience of what she broods over. But then I, I don't know exactly where she mentions it, but the answer to me is compassion, right? Mm -hmm. The answer is it's okay to still be thinking about these things. It's because the, when you get mad at the brooding and you don't let yourself think through it fully, then it just stays stuck forever. And that's what I've really had to deal with over years is understanding to not get mad every time I think about it again and that it's okay. And I can just, you know, send positive things and, and accept, okay, I'm thinking about this again. It was very important to me and, and those sorts of things. <coughs> and at the end of the day, we are going to brood. We are going to have those moments when we we're human. We're going to have those moments well, where we, where we fall back into a pattern or a habit. But I think what's really important to point out is that part of our healing comes from how fast we can move beyond it. So where her brooding could take six chapters in a book or months in a life, as you begin your, your journey and your healing and you start to integrate everything into your wholeness, the six chapters become three chapters, become one chapter. The six months become three months, become one month, become right. a week. 
I'm fine now, things that I would normally brood on, it might be an hour, it might be a minute, it might be five minutes, but my ability to like uh, self, I don't know how to explain it. My ability to ma manage it myself yeah. is substantially um, it changed over and, where it was. And that's what meditation is really helpful for as well. And what she's learning here is you have to not, when those things come up, that's again, something you can't control. You can't control if something triggers an emotion or a memory that you thought you were over and then you get mad. And so, no, you just have to say, okay, that happened and I accept it. And now let me, let me work with it. Right. And right. I think that's where the management is. Yeah. Now I can, when something comes up, I can give it attention and it lasts a lot less time because I, I feel okay to give it the attention it wants rather than being like, Oh, why is this here again? Whereas a lot of people think, especially in the realm of love, Oh, get over them. Why are you still, it's been years. Why are you still thinking about this person or whatever it is? It's not just love, but then you have to think, no, okay. I have to accept it. The, this, I can't control what my subconscious generates directly right. like that, right? I have to work with it and, and accept it and, and that kind of thing. And here, what, like, you know, she talks about um, the voice that bellows out of her. You have no idea how strong my love is, right? And, and she, so it's in this meditation and this, like, it's like a, it's like a mother lion, right? It's a compassionate mm -hmm. yell, of I'm defending you, I'm here to protect you. And I think that to me connects to the voice like that she associates with God and the, this, this idea of this, this deep protectorate of yourself, right? Um, and she's and starting to realize that it is, it is coming from within. So she has that voice, the two, the two voices, the voice on that's telling her she's lonely and she's angry and she's a failure and she's a loser and any, you know, all of these negative connotations that we put on ourselves. And then she's got that other voice. So her voices are still battling with each other. Right. Mm -hmm. But yeah, but then this one sort of like comes and is so strong that she says it quiets everything. Right. And right. it's the first time in the meditation, in the ashram that she's actually in a state of quietude. Probably in her life. Probably in yeah, her life. That's quite possible as well. And I think that's really like knowing that like you love yourself that much. Absolutely. Then it's like, okay, now that's a, that's a starting point. That's the starting point. Right. And I'm the most important thing to me. I know what I, I want to live my life. I love myself. Okay. We all agree right. on that. Let's start Let's, to move forward. Right. And she says silence followed an intense vibrating odd silence. The lion in the giant savannah of my heart surveyed his newly quiet kingdom with satisfaction. Mm -hmm. It was like when I do yoga, cause I do yoga with um, YouTube there's you take a deep breath and then you let out this big, huge lion's breath, right? It's like you take it and it goes so deep and then you let it out with the sound like a roar. You're letting out that lion's breath. And then it's like everything, it's like all the toxins, all the, all the not good feelings, everything can be released with that breath. 
And it's like this renewed, you've almost like renewed your being. And that's what she did. Not through yoga, through meditation, right? Yeah. No, I think that makes sense. And then it's interesting because we get uh, right after that happens, she gives us the like exact contrast to that. So she talks about how Richard was treating her before that moment and how this was then different because she said that Richard had never watched anyone fight against themselves as much as she was. And he would ask her every time after meditation, do you think you'll ever amount to anything? Right. And that's like, that's the thing is like, people are so worried of what they will or will not amount to not realizing that they can create who they are first and be satisfied with that. And then, I mean, not that you won't care if you amount to anything or not, but like you've already amounted to something, right? And so that's what she says coming out of here. Um, like before he even asks that question this time, she just says, I already have, mister. I am already this person. I am. I have already accomplished creating the person I am and that I know I am and I'm proud to be. And so I've accomplished something and it's not will I ever like, it's a totally different framework that I think is so important. And like, it's, it's funny. This is a funny exchange between them as well. And they go get their, um, whatever their super their, caffeinated their cola thumbs up, their thumbs up. Cola. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's a really interesting contrast, right. Of she has this moment. And then how does he immediately sees like, she's more confident in herself. She's not worried. And, 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 you know, I'm sure it will come back. It's not like she's cured forever from this one moment but she's tasted it now. She knows that feeling of, I am worthy. I have built something. I have accomplished something, right? And it's so powerful. And she's learned that she is able to let it go and the world won't crumble around her, right? Because that's what she was talking about before. She is in so much control. So she's now learning that you don't need to be in control to have success. You don't need to be in control to have fullness right? Control is it. You you need to be. I'm using the negative connotation. I'm saying control with that negative connotation that's always uh, placed. No, I I think it's just important. We've talked about this in other episodes of like, what is in your control and what isn't in your control. And and you want to be in fully control of what is in your control, but that's a very, very small amount, right? That's who you are and not, and letting go of the control of everything else. Right? right. And I think that's, I just want, yeah, I understood what you meant, but I just want to provide that. Um, okay. That clarification for sure. Um, and so now we sort of switch gears a little bit in the, in the, can book. I just say something about Richard? A thought just came to me. Yeah. So she goes to this ashram. She has this guru she's been following, but she's never met the guru. And the guru is like, from what I've understood from this guru, she's a very strong woman. She's very educated. She challenges people and everything. And it's almost like uh, Richard has manifested as her physical guru. Yeah. Because the guru is not physically there. And we often need to have that person in our lives who will challenge us. My three children, you and your brother and sister, have always challenged me. Right. And so um, at times it was difficult, but when you come out the other side, it can be a beautiful thing. And so she's, she's finding that with Richard, Richard is challenging her to step outside of her comfort zone. um, But he's providing her the compassion she needs to be able to do it 
from a place of feeling okay with it. Right. And I think it's, you can very much tell the difference between people who like being challenged and are, mm -hmm. and who see the real value in it yeah. versus people who surround themselves with people who agree with them, who don't ever want to be challenged and, and want to just have their own views reflected upon them. And um, yeah, that's a really important point. And he does play this really interesting role because, you know, I do, I, I, I personally hold that you can be fully honest with yourself. You don't need someone else necessarily, but for many people, most of the time, it is helpful to have someone because it Absolutely. does, it is difficult. And you talked about reflection as well. And there's something to be said about someone who can help you see yourself Absolutely. when it's more difficult. Cause in some moments it is quite difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, now we get to what uh, Richard calls the Geet, uh, which is the Guru Gita, which um, is like an hour and a half chant or something that they have to do every morning. And she hates it. Right. Um, and, you know, I won't get into whether or not people think that spending an hour and a half every day chanting a magic song is worthwhile or not. You know, I'm a little skeptical of that. Um, but Pers regard pers personal choice. Sure. But, um, <laughs> regardless of that, it's this idea of, okay, if there's even for four months, she's like said, I think it would be beneficial to do this. Um, or right now she's at six weeks, spoiler alert. She, she hasn't decided to stay yet. Um, but there's this exchange with the kind of down to earth Buddhist uh, monk or, or the down to earth uh, monk or whatever he's called. Um, he's a monk. And like she asks, how do you keep the motivation to stay with it? And he said, what's the alternative to quit whenever something gets challenging mm -hmm. to futz around your whole life, be miserable and incomplete. Well, and I, I love the word that he, I love the fact that he used the word fats. Yeah. yeah. And so like the whole idea is it's only an hour and a half, right? Yeah. And, and I've had moments where an hour and a half felt impossible to get through. And I've had moments where an hour and a half goes by like this. And it's, you know, the whole, you know, time distortion phenomenon in human mind is a whole other thing and super fascinating and how you <laughs> find some way, one way or the other. But it's so important to say like, um, and he says here, you can let yourself off the hook anytime you want. If you don't want to do this thing, don't do it. But if you've decided to do it, you have free will. If you decide to do something, figure out how to do it properly. And, and it's, completely. And, yeah. and completely. Like if you're going to, if you're choosing to spend your time on something, whatever it is, even if it's chanting an hour and a half every morning, yeah. um, actually do it properly. No one's forcing you to do this. She says, like he says, like you can let yourself off the hook, but I'm not letting you off the hook, right? Like you're here, it's important to this practice, but you don't have to do it. But it's, it's this idea of you're in control, but it, so many people do things that they feel they're not in control of and then just complain and it's begrudging and then it takes forever and it, the, their day drags by. And it's like, what are, you, what are you really doing with your life? I don't know how to put it any other way if that's the way you experience things. And this is such a sort of concrete uh, and distilled example um, of it. And I want to jump to like how she kind of battles it and reconciles with it. But do you have anything before we get to the point of her? Like, well, I think as a society, eating yeah. The well, I think as a society, we tend to, especially now we live in a disposable society. 
So everything is so fast paced and everything is, you know, right in our face that we don't really have to take the time to push ourselves through it and challenge ourselves. If we don't like it, we can move on to something else. And that's why whenever I meet a musician or an athlete or somebody, a dancer, someone who has found their passion and focuses on it and practices on it and, and has that commitment to it, I always honor them. Because when I think about who I was as a young person, not being able to make that commitment, my husband's a perfect example. He's a drummer. He's a golfer. He's so committed to his passions that he will go and practice just because he just loves it so much. I was never, I don't have that within me. I've never really found that thing because I like everything. Um, where, so I honor that in people. And I think that's the point of this. You, you can't, it's not always just about giving up and moving on. Sometimes it's about really trudging through and holding ourselves accountable to that final commitment, right? Right. And two things come to mind that I, we won't have time to get into, but it might be just interesting to explore another time is one, why don't you think you have that? Because I think everyone has that. And so that would be interesting to explore. And, and I wonder if people listening also resonate with that idea. And also two, you know, what I'm passionate about is building businesses. And, and that's not necessarily viewed by many people the same way as someone who's passionate about music or the arts and things like that. So I think that's really interesting just in terms of the kind of broader social context of I have found my passion, but it's one that I'm not celebrated for like an athlete or a musician might be. I'm actually hmm. denigrated for, which so is the, really interesting. So the fact that you just said that, I'm passionate about learning. So whether it's reading or now I'm learning Italian or different things. So I think it's more, I'm passionate about learning. Right. And so that's a much more that's positive exactly. way to frame it. Like, exactly. Um, yeah. And so now we get to um, what one thing. No, it's, uh, so now we get to her actual kind of like battle with the Gura Gita, right? So she only has like one week that she's planning to be left at stay at the ashram seven more times. She can do it. Um, and then one day she oversleeps and gets locked into a room, jumps out <laughs> of a window, cuts her leg. And she's like, I have to get to the Gurugita. And then she's in the Gurugita and her mind is going, I don't want to be here. And her mind or in her mind, the Swamiji, the, the guru's guru or whatever says, Really? You you seem you sure seem like you want to be here. You fought really hard to be here. And so it's like a, a contradiction she can't reconcile. Mm -hmm. And then she's like, okay, you're right. I do want to be here. And she's realized that's true because of the, she wouldn't, if she didn't want to be here, she could not be there. And I think that's the important realization that everyone has to make at some point in their life. If they didn't want to be wherever they are complaining about, they could leave. <laughs> they could it's be not, elsewhere. And it's not just complaining. I mean, you can think about circumstances where people are in relationships that are not kind to them. And it's really about making the choice to make the change for yourself. 
I call it saving yourself. So um, whether you're saving your soul, you're saving your spirit, you're saving your physical body, um, we all have the choice to make the change. Right. right. And I think that's a really important thing is, and it's like we capture her, a, like an actual moment of her mind realizing that, which is so powerful. And as soon as that premise switches, as soon as that flip switches, it now becomes, how do I get through this? Okay. This is a struggle for me, but I've chosen to be here. How do I get through it? And she says, okay, well, there's this idea that the Gura Gita is about love. Who does she love the most right now in the world? And it's her nephew. And I'll set aside whether or not her energy teleported across the planet and helped him. No sleep. spoilers. No spoilers. What? What? Make no spoilers. Sure, just make sure you don't share. This is a beautiful part of her story. So make sure you don't share any of the little details. Well, no, I'm, I'm saying that people should. Oh, okay. I'm saying that people, even if they, like me, are skeptical of this experience with her oh nephew, okay that like we can leave that aside because okay yeah um but she she says okay well i'm gonna sort of sing this to my nephew that's how it will benefit me that's how i will get the most out of this experience right. i've chosen to engage with and so it totally shifts her mindset which i think is really important and then one thing I wanted to mention of her coming out of this like deep, yeah, and I would encourage, it's like this deep experience and this calm, this massive experience for her. And coming out of it, she mentions how like she's starting to experience this idea of like universal love, right? She says how like, she says something about how there's like, the, there's no difference between these people, between her and her nephew and the meditators around her and this sort of thing. And again, this is one of these things where when, when, when books like this talk about like universal love, I think people like, cause there's this association in Buddhism of we're all one, there's this oneness and this kind of thing. And I don't agree explicitly like the way they put it forward, but there is this fundamental humanity of each person, right? Like there is something that does connect us. We were all children once, we all wanted to be something great at some point and whether or not what happens as we all age and that's, you know, a very complex thing to talk about, but being able to understand and have that sort of empathy for everyone that, mm -hmm. or almost everyone, because there are, I think, I think it's possible for there to be a lost cause, like someone can do that to themselves, unfortunately, but for almost everyone, like to have that sort of empathy and understanding and, and her kind of fighting and realizing this battle in herself has helped her kind of see that, uh, see that aspect more broadly, which I think is really, really powerful. Something I've often, I've said for years, you know, when you, uh, years ago, I met a man, I was at a birthday party for this older, older person. And I met this man and he must've been at the time in his sixties or seventies. And he asked me where I was from, because that's general conversation when you meet somebody. And I said to him, where are you from? And he said, I'm international. And I started thinking about that because he was definitely like, I could tell where he was from. Um, and I started thinking about that. And I started thinking about humanity and people as a whole and us as a whole. And I loved that because it really makes, it's, you know, international, universal, 
whatever it may, whatever word you choose, we are all, and this is something I say when people question differences, we're all human, we all bleed, we all have hearts that pump, we all have the ability to think. Fundamentally, we are all the same. It does, on the physical plane, on the physical plane. What we choose, then how our mind starts to work and where we go with our experiences and things like that. But at the end of the day, every single baby is born. We all came from that, from the same place, the same way that we were made. Right, and so I, I agree with the sentiment. What I would say though, is saying that someone's an international person, that to me is still like an other view of it. It's like, oh, related to others, I'm everywhere as well. Whereas I say I'm an individual, right? Like I am me. It doesn't matter what country I, I'm me and I could have been this person wherever I was born and right. I choose to be who I choose to be because that's my decision. And so it's very much, yeah, it, it doesn't matter that I'm Canadian. Like there's a whole other thing about like the principles of different countries and blah, blah, blah. But like, yeah, it's, it's kind of more about like, who am I? Like, who am I? I'm, I'm, I'm me. I'm, I'm David. And like, that's, let's start from there. Right. Right. Um, I don't know if that directly connects to the point you were making, but <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> um, and so after this experience with the Gita, the Geet, the Gura Gita, that's when she decides to stay at the ashram. So she had originally been planning to spend six weeks here and then go and travel India, meet with the, the Dalai Lama and go to a bunch of temples and stuff. But she's realizing here that no, this point was really devotion to understand herself and in her words, understand God. And that the one of my favorite quotes ever, because it really resonates with me is you can't see a reflection in running water. And so again, this brings back the word that you emphasized earlier is reflection. Like, if you're always chasing after things, if you're always busy, if you're always going, 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 you never face yourself, you're never in a quiet room alone, thinking, who am I? Why am I doing these things? And so she realizes she has this opportunity at the ashram to just stay put for a little while and see what that's like, see what comes up, see what it really means to spend months face, facing yourself. And so that's really interesting to me. And, and this is not her norm. Her norm is to keep going. So she's taking a huge step by saying, I'm not going to keep running anymore. And I think we talked about it. I don't remember if it was on one of our other um, recordings or if it was your, your, just you and me, but um, years ago when I was struggling with something, um, somebody said to me, you can keep changing, but you have to keep taking yourself with you. No matter where you go, whether you move houses or you change jobs or whatever it may be, if you don't fundamentally change what's inside of you, recognize it, find your worth, fill that, fill those voids. You can go anywhere and you're still going to be taking those same issues with you. You have to heal the issues so then you can move on and be in a better place. Right. And I, again, I think that's the point of this book, right? right. Like that's the value I get out of this book is the real deep explanation, exploration and understanding of that of the fact that you have to create yourself first. You can't just go and chase all of these things. And it's, again, it's not the petals, right? It's, it's you have to have the stem and the root and or whatever else is in a flower, right? Um, the pistols. The pistols. Um, and, and 
yeah so you you anywhere you go you take yourself with you and i think that's Absolutely. such an important point and why many people run for their whole life because they don't want themselves to catch up right um and it's and you know really quite unfortunate and the thing is like you said the root the root of the flower we really need to have that base that provides us with that stability right and so often when we're the base is ourselves we think the base is our home we think the base is our family we think the base is our friends but really and truly the base has to be yourself right your roots have to come from yourself yeah and and how you choose to nourish yourself right exactly and and it's more like the house the friends, they're the soil, right? They're not part of you, but they're the things you choose to give you the nourishment you need. Absolutely. That's kind of... We should be writing this down. It's a beautiful analogy. Well, we're recording it, so we can write it down later. <laughs> okay. um, and so then she, we're back. So she's decided to stay, and she's now telling us a bit about her meditation. And this one, this chapter is really important to me. What personally. chapter are we on? I've lost 56. track. Okay, because I have some important stuff from 56 as well. Yeah, so here she's, she just kind of lets us into her thoughts during meditation about like just jumping on. Oh, I'm, I'm med- I like meditating now. Let me think of all of the great places to meditate. And, these <laughs> things, right? and then um, I want to really talk about Vipassana meditation. So mm. I don't know if you had something other than that, but I want to no. spend. And it's so, the Vipassana, yeah. So when I was first reading this, right away Vipassana meditation really jumped out at me. I didn't understand it, but she said, you just sit and do nothing. And like, so that's for a long time how I meditated. I just sat and did nothing. I didn't even remember that she mentioned there was these retreats, these 10 day things where they train you. But she just said it was like the most austere thing. And I was like, I need that. I needed the most challenging form of meditation for myself. And It also talks about how the Vipassana meditators think that uh, she says it's not necessarily the path for her. It's too austere. And uh, they think God is a security blanket. So like they, they are, they dismiss the idea of God as well, which I really resonate with and value. Um, Mm -hmm. But this idea of she tries this Vipassana meditation where she just sits and just has nothing happen, has nothing go on. It, it really resonated with me. And I ended up, you know, multiple years later, now it's about a year and a half ago, doing one of these 10 day meditation retreats. Um, but that is Vipassana. I'm just having a life changing experience there. And it was so valuable. And I encourage everyone to do it. Um, and I have one other specific example, but I just want to highlight that this really stuck out at me, this approach and this, this desire for like, you know, even pushing yourself further to then find a balance of where you're comfortable. So it's not that everyone needs to be a Vipassana meditator forever or whatever. Um, but it's really interesting. And, and I just wanted to highlight it because for me, like Vipassana is where I learned to meditate really deeply. I did one of these retreats, it changed my life. And, and it's important to, uh, to kind of highlight and also, I suppose, give her credit for introducing me to it in the first place. Um, there's three, three quotes, three sections that specifically three things that she wrote that jumped out at me. 
And it relates to what we've talked about in the past, but how we can move forward. And so she said, in our real lives, we are constantly hopping around to adjust ourselves. Because when she started doing the Vipassana, she was thinking about the pain she was feeling, because you have to sit still in Vipassana. You're not supposed to move. So she said, we are constantly hopping around to adjust ourselves around discomfort, physical, emotional, and psychological, in order to evade the reality of grief and nuisance. Um, Vipassana meditation teaches that grief and nuisance are inevitable in this life. But if you can plant yourself in stillness long enough, you will in time experience the truth that everything, both uncomfortable and lovely, does eventually pass. And this relates to what we talked about just before, um, about the people moving around and constantly changing and all of those things. If you can sit with your discomfort, you can, you're then giving yourself the permission to be able to heal from it. And that's the only way that you can move forward. Whether it's, um, you know, some people experience loss, loss of a parent, loss of a marriage, loss of some uh, different things. And they brood on it, they dwell in it, they live in it, it becomes their whole source of, of life, the grief around it. Other people experience those things and they see and they reflect on the beauty that was a part of the relationship that came out of it. And they're able to see the, the lovely, her word lovely things that were, that manifested from those relationships. And they're able to move on. And it doesn't mean that you ever forget. And it doesn't mean that you don't have moments of grief around it. It's just that the pain is not as all-consuming and I think that's an important thing that comes out of this right and and like you know I don't agree with the Buddhist philosophy that all life is suffering right I don't think no I don't true. believe that either but they like there, there's this really powerful notion that I, I've loved since in great since I was 18 this too shall pass absolutely right and the idea of whatever painful thing is going on it it will pass right and but Part of it is you sort of have to, it, it makes me think again of, you know, when we were talking about her dream of the waves and, and can she stop the waves and you can't, you have to learn how to swim with the waves. You have to go with it. And then it actually passes more quickly. And that's the experience when, when, a, when I'm dealing with anxiety or depression or whatever it is, I have to work with it. I have to sit still, not run from it, but sit still and let it come and whatever the things are. And so I think that's like kind of the core message of Vipassana in particular is sit and feel the discomfort, feel what's going on and understand it, right? Yeah. And, and you know, um, one of the most important women in my life was very sick. And as she was navigating her illness, I'm sorry, okay she used to say it is what it is and she knew she was gonna die but she never ever lost her light and that taught me so much and i often think about that it is what it is because that too shall pass and the strength we can find within ourselves gives us the courage to be able to face our demons, to be able to move beyond them, 
and to be able to see the light the way she did. And, you know, that's part of what this is teaching us, you know, that as hard as it can be sometimes, you know, people say it could always be worse, right? You don't know the grass is always greener on the other side. There's so many different ways that it can be said. Right. But and at the end of the day, it is what it is. And we choose what we're going to make of it. Right. And I think I want to make one more uh, point on Vipassana, because this is really the next two chapters. I really emphasize sort of this approach because people, some people take it is what it is to mean more than it should and almost kind of dismiss their own conduct. Like, right. oh, I am who I am. It is what it right. is. No, no, no. That's the right approach. And so I want to jump into that. But I think, um, you know, the whole idea is, again, we've talked about sort of the metaphysical versus the man-made, what you can control, what you can't control. And what meditation helps you with is real, because people are so plugged into everything around them that they think right. that like their response is almost automatic. They think that it controls them almost, or they might not think it, but it does. And it's about slowing that down so you can see, okay, no, that is what it is. And I can choose how to act accordingly, which is what you said. Well, and it's turning off the noise. So I'm hard of hearing. I wear hearing aids. And for a long time, I used to find it a nuisance that I couldn't hear without my hearing aids as well as I could hear with my hearing aids. And now I look at it like a gift because I come home or if I want and I don't like the noise that's around me, I can turn down my hearing aids or I take them out. And I yeah. am now surrounded, the noise, the, the white noise, the noise that is our society goes from being up here to being down here. And I'm able to go into that quiet place. So that's why I look at it like it's a gift. So a lot, most people don't have that gift of hearing loss. <laughs> and so they are constantly surrounded by noise. Some people need that to be constantly surrounded by noise. Right. And I think it's because, I mean, for me, I had the exact opposite issue, right? Like I think I'm, I have issues with filtering out noise and I, so like the amount of chaos I had and stuff, I think is the, like, it, it provides a good perspective to people of the other side of it. Um, and one thing I just want to add on Vipassana generally is this experience she has with the mosquitoes. I've actually had that same experience before where she meditates and she feels all of these bites and she's not reacting and how powerful, like, you know, she says it's not the Nobel prize, but, or whatever she says, a Med congressional medal of honor, but she's never not swatted a mosquito before. And so to exert that amount of control over yourself and know you have that amount of control over yourself is also really powerful. And I had an experience once I was meditating and I felt the mosquitoes buzzing around me and stuff and I just didn't react. And I'm not saying you should do this all of the time or anything, right? Like you don't want a lot of mosquito bites, but um, to just kind of, cause I'd had, a, I'd had moments in the past where I was so engaged in something that I didn't notice the bugs, but it's different to be like so calm that I don't react to the bugs. Right. right? And it, and so it's very interesting. So I just wanted to. Well, how, 
so how she says it is if, because that's one of the things she says, if I could sit through this non-lethal physical discomfort, then what other discomforts might I someday be able to sit through? What other about emotional discomforts, which have even, are even harder for me to endure? What about jealousy, anger, fear, disappointment, loneliness, shame, boredom? She's starting to look at those feelings that used to overwhelm her so much and see that if she can sit through this, why can't she sit through that, right? Right, and I think she, that, sorry. Go ahead. I think that's what's so important is it like gives a whole new baseline, right? Perspective, can, yeah. A whole new perspective of mm. I can do, I can deal with anything, right? I can, yeah. I can literally deal with anything that life could present to me. Right. And, and, you know, people get that experience, that understanding in all sorts of ways, but I think it's really valuable. Meditation is really valuable to really, they, in Vipassana, what they say is you need to experience that you need to experience that everything passes that even the most minute things, the most little annoying things, because you can tell yourself that, but you want to experience it and know it for yourself. Right. Which is um, important. And I think I just, just if I may, that's an important point because we're told so much, right? We're told what we should feel. We're told how we should behave. We're told all of these things. And what's really important is that I know for myself, I can be told a lot of things, but I know that when I experience it for myself or I read it for myself, I'm able to integrate it in a different way. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's an important should shy away from what we're fearful of or the unknown because it can open such amazing um, paths for us. Yeah, and, and so now jump, now this is the, I think this is, I think the most important part of the whole book in my view. Um, and whether or not you agree with all of her conclusions or not, this is really important. Um, she starts to kind of really explore herself, her thoughts. And I mean, I'll just highlight the points that I wanted to highlight. So on in chapter 57 on page 175, this is something we discussed in an earlier episode, but she says that... Um, if faith were rational, it wouldn't by definition be faith. I think that's important because I agree and I think their faith is bad. So I'll just say my view that, but I think because of that perspective, there's a common understanding of what she's talking about. And so whether or not you agree with her on faith or reason or rationality and what each has a role uh, to play I don't think faith has a role and we're not going to have time to get into all of the reasons why, but because she acknowledges and understands that they are fundamentally different, there's a lot to be gained from her perspective on each, right? And whereas many people aren't honest, aren't honest with themselves and they think that the two conflate, the, some, the two somehow overlap, but they don't. Rationality and reason That's about what do I see? What do I understand? What do I know? And faith is, I don't have those things. Do I buy into it anyways? Mm -hmm. And most people don't have such a clear cut thing. 
And again, whether or not you or the listener agrees with me that faith isn't a good thing, because she has this perspective and is honest with herself, you know she's deeply honest and deeply introspective that these two things in her mind are different. And if anyone who I think disagrees with that isn't being honest. And so that's so powerful for me that she gets to that point and has that understanding, regardless of what she then chooses to do with it. That sort of relates to something we were talking about before we even got on on this episode. And, uh, you know, um, she says, faith is walking face first and full speed into the dark, right? And it's like, do we really want to live our lives? I know that I need to ask questions. I ask a lot of questions I want to know. And I, I don't have blind faith. And I think that that's what's important is that you can have belief in something, but it's really about thinking about what is the true definition of faith. And I don't have that here with me right now. It's something I'm going to look up after, but what is the true definition of faith and has faith has the true definition become misconstrued to support religions and things like that, that were used all those years ago to control people because they didn't know how to ask the questions. Whereas I think it's actually they, their people were discouraged to ask the questions. If you okay. ask the questions, if you ask the questions, you don't have enough faith. Right. Or so you question the word of God or the, exactly. or the rabbi. Exactly. And so, but I think, yeah, so it, it's an interesting thing to explore generally. Um, and, you know, whether people think I wouldn't, I wouldn't have faith. I, I don't like, I want to know why, who, who should I listen to without reason. Right. And, you know, this, I remember being four years old and questioning the teachers, whereas a lot of people just, oh, they take what the teacher says on faith. And I didn't get along with many teachers because of it. I didn't get along mm-hmm. with, you know, my religious school teachers. I, I, I struggled with my parents because I didn't take anything that anyone said for granted. I challenged it. You have to make me understand why. Right. And it's the same. I've, I've had challenges in my workplaces because I ask lots of questions. Yeah. Because I didn't always see the way things were happening and believe that it was the best. Right. So it's a struggle. It's a struggle. You know, I said my passion is learning. So that's making me question now, do I have faith? I don't know. (laughs) Very interesting or deeper in our next series. Um, But, um, and so I wanted to highlight that and then get into what is really, I think the, the, so that's like the baseline that sets us up for this next piece, which I think is the most important thing. She says that she has to take up maintenance of her own soul she knows she can choose her thoughts, right? And so she's so deeply introspective here that she is aware that she can create her own soul. She's in charge of who that, what that is, what that becomes. And so few people understand that. And then she goes even deeper. She talks about the harbor of her mind. She doesn't want to harbor negative thoughts anymore. And realizing that she can choose her thoughts. And again, it's not directly, you can't reach in and rip out thoughts, 
but you can train your mind in a certain way based on what you value, what you choose to look at, who you choose to engage with. She, and, uh, she uses the word intention. Again, I just highlighted that one word because when we set our intention for the day, for who we want to be, for what we want our life, lives to be, we have now started setting the blueprint for building that. And so it, it really, intention is another important word to link in with the words that you were just sharing. Right, and I think it's important to know, like some people I think have the idea that intention is something you just use, you say, oh, this is my intention. And then it, maybe it will happen, maybe it won't. That's not, no, no, then no, no, you're no. not intending on it. No. I, intending, like you have to act to do it. You have to, work for it. And so this is, a, uh, I think in one of the first episodes, I mentioned this, this thing which comes up now of the, the gentleman praying to, uh, it's an old Italian joke of a gentleman begging to a saint, help me win the lottery. And then the saint goes, the saint comes alive, you know, buy a lottery ticket. And again, right. you know, it's a funny way of capturing so many people say they want things, say they, they put stuff out there that they want, that they wish they had in their life, but they don't actually work for it. And so to well, highlight that she- Oh, sorry, go ahead. Just for her to highlight that she knows she's in control of her own soul and her own thoughts. And I mean, those are you know two parts of the same thing, two parts of the same whole or whatever, but um, it's so powerful. And, and I think that, again, I just wanna emphasize that these, her deep, understanding of her own mind regardless of the conclusions she comes to more broadly is why it's so valuable and to have someone who actually takes us on a journey into this part of themselves and is honest about what's going on during all of that is just is is hugely hugely valuable to me well you know when i think to um you you just shared a lot of words i shared the word intention and you talked about how intention people use the word intention and then they don't act on it, right? And that you have to do the work. I think of the word try the same way. And I think that society has taken words and simplified them so that they can provide excuses for not doing, right? Well, I intended to do it. I was going to try to do it. Well, yeah. if you're going to try to do something, you can keep trying and keep trying and keep trying and keep trying, but what's your success going to be? You just have to do it. Right. So and I don't like to use the word try when I speak because I believe that saying the word try gives you permission not to succeed. Right. And there's a quote, I think it's Yoda, do or do not, there is no try, but it's right. very much this idea of if you really want something, work at it as long as it takes to get it. Exactly. As long as it takes. So what do you mean you're, you tried to do it? Why did you stop, right? And there's this idea, the only failure is quitting, right? Um, like, and, and I think that's so important. And especially that's the thing that people fear with respect to trying to be someone else, trying to change their self, their soul. They're so scared of if they admit they're not satisfied with who they are right now, what if they fail at being someone else? What if they fail at changing their soul? And it's like, no, if you really care about it, it's not been easy for me to change who I was. I'm getting a little emotional. Um, like, 
it was the hardest thing I've ever done, but I was committed to doing it. Right. And, and for, and, and I talk to people who don't want to admit who they are because they don't want to face that. And, and, you know, I, I'll say like, I faced it and I, I worked so hard. I almost, I really struggled, but I knew how important it was. And I worked for the thing I wanted to, to get. Um, well, and I didn't just try. I, I did it. You did it. Right? And this is a perfect segue into this. It's a sacrifice to let them go, of course. It's a loss of old habits, comforting old grudges and fam familiar vignettes. Of course, this all takes practice and effort. It's not a teaching that you can hear once and then expect to master immediately. It's constant vigilance. It's work. It's hard work to be the best that you can be for yourself. And I used to, as I began my journey or my, my exploration of myself, I, I would say, I am a different person today than I was yesterday. And I will be a different person tomorrow because I was willing to, to do the hard work through writing, through meditating, through letting go of people who didn't fill my spirit anymore. I was willing to let go of all of that so that I could discover myself. Right. And, and the, I agree. The one word I, I, you know, I'm a stickler for certain words. The one word I'll highlight is I don't like the word sacrifice because when you, when I really understood what was at stake, it wasn't a sacrifice to let those exactly. people go. Right. And so I just want to highlight that it's, it's not a sacrifice. It's, it's, it, it eventually becomes the easiest thing in the world. Well, you know, sacrifice means putting something you like, you value less above something you value more, right? So you're sacrificing the higher to the lower, but that's not what this is. You recognize that this was in a different, was in the wrong state in my, in my hierarchy of values. And so I just, and it, that doesn't mean it's easy, but when I stop viewing it as a sacrifice and I realize the value of it, then it does become easier. So you and I had our challenges. And at first I fought it because you were very specific in what you needed. And it was hard for me to understand it, to integrate it, to respect it in some ways because it didn't align with what where my understanding was at that time. And so I did work around that. And I got to the point where I looked at it like as a gift. It was a gift that we had that time apart because it helped me to grow in a different direction and you were doing your, and heal in a different direction and you were doing your healing. And that's brought us to this point. Mm. And this point only came because I was not fighting it anymore. And I was willing to let it go because it was what it was. Mm. It is what it is, right? And I couldn't control it. So I think that I just had to share that because I think it's such an important, um, lesson's not the right word, but it's an important thing with relation, with in, in relationships relationships with ourselves, relationships with other people, that when we're willing to let it go 
and look at it like, okay, this might not be what I saw it as being, but it's a gift because it's going to take me in a different direction or take us in a different direction, then the healing can begin. Right. And I think that it is what it is. And that approach is, she mentions here, fate versus free will, recognizing what you do have control over and what you don't have control over. And again, I don't necessarily agree with the specific terms, but there's, again, there's two things. There's what you have control over, what your free will can do and what you don't. And she calls that fate. I'll call it the metaphysical, this whatever just is what it is that I cannot control. But the most important thing is to understand the distinction because too many people get too caught up trying to control what they can't or pretending and lying to themselves that they can't change what they can. And to really have a clear understanding of those things is so important. And I think, you know, that for a long time, I tried to change you. I tried to change other people around me because mm-hmm. that I thought I'd control that. And maybe it was easier to control than changing myself, but really understanding the difference between what you can and cannot control is so important. And again, she understands this distinction, which gives you this ability to focus on yourself, be content in yourself and whatever else happens, trust you can deal with. And, and that sort of thing. Um, um, are we almost, it's, are we now, getting to the end? Cause I have one last thing that really lines into that. Yeah. And then we can jump to the last chapter. Well, it's in the last chapter actually. So go ahead. Okay. So yeah. So now we, we've reached this point of sort of under, she has this deep understanding of herself finally. And now she's still struggling to let go of David. Right. <laughs> And I think it's so important that maybe because she has this real deep understanding of herself. Oh, no, now it's not David. It's her ex-husband. Right. And maybe she's at a place to to release that finally. And I think with her ex-husband, she she couldn't let go with him of him because she was still so angry with herself because of the way it played out. Right. And I think what, and, and it's more than that as well. I think that's part of it. She was still letting his view of her impact her view right. of herself. Right. But also we talked about how, you know, before she wasn't full. Right. And so there's this idea that they mentioned, I forget where, but marriage sews two people together. And I think, especially when someone isn't full, they become full of their partner And so that was ripped out of her and potentially ripped out of him. And so it's under, I mentioned in an earlier thing, like I wasn't married, but I had, it felt like my soul was ripped out when I ended things with my ex. And it's because I was empty and she filled me up. And so I can imagine if he doesn't understand that, how devastating it was to him Mm -hmm. that this woman would steal himself, right? There's a quote I wrote, uh, or it's part of a poem I wrote. It's not that, Uh, you know, she left me, it's that she murdered who I thought I was, right? And like, that's kind of the strong sentiment. So there's both her pain that she did that to herself, and that she knows she may have caused that for someone else. And she needs to figure out how to release the hatred to release all of this animosity. And so I'll, I'll leave, I'll let you go now. And then we can talk briefly about what that experience actually was. Um, which then gets us to the end of end of this episode. 
Well, I think that society has created this, this um, belief in soulmates. You find that person, that person fills your vessel, brings you everything you don't have, and then you balance each other. And that's such um, a false belief, for lack of a better way of saying it, um, because really your soulmate is someone who shows you your flaws, is someone who helps you heal. And it's not about having all the same likes. And this is something that I had to learn to be able to continue in my relationship with my husband because I was really struggling with all those things because I, I was an empty vessel and I was expecting him to fill me up just like my other husband did. And, you know, when you realize that, and he, my, actually my husband is, is a very full person. And so when you realize that your soulmate is actually that person who can help you become your best self, not become a reflection of them. Yeah. That's when the healthiest relationships can happen. There's and, you know, I, I always, um, I'm very grateful for, you know, one of the things that I say is I'm grateful for who we, who I am when I'm, who I am when we're together. I'm grateful for who we are when we're apart. And I'm grateful for how we continue to grow as one. So it's not that we're only one. We are individual people. We are people who come together and our love grows out of that, right? Yeah. And when we can find that within ourselves, that's when we can really be our fullest self. Right. And I think there's one quote that comes to mind that I saw when I was in Denmark. It's like, I don't want you to be my sun. I want you to be my moon so you can reflect the sunlight when my son's not around. So like right. someone, you need your own life purpose. You need your own uh, source your own of light. light. Your own light. But you want someone who can reflect that to you. And especially when the moments when it feels dark, because everyone does have those experiences. Exactly. Um, but it also like very much, I don't want someone who helps me or shows me where to go. I want someone who wants to walk with me, right? two people who are walking together. Absolutely. Um, and so, you know, what she has a really hard time with is the fact that she's still hated by her husband. Right. right? And so she, this uh, gentleman, the plumber, a poet plumber takes her somewhere and says, like she, he takes her on top of the ashram, right? Like the highest point of the ashram. And he says, I'm going to leave you now. You're going up there, stay there until it's finished. And she doesn't understand what he means, but like until it's finished, right? Until this thing is out of your system and his instructions for freedom, there's this re repetition, let go, let go, let mm -hmm. go. You cannot control your husband. You cannot control what he thinks of you. You cannot, but you can let go of it. You have to figure out how to do that. And, you know, I'll just say that it's, such a powerful thing. And, and again, you know, she has these visions in her meditation of what's going on. And some people might be skeptical of this experience, but I'll just say for what it's worth, 
I've had experiences like these, right? You can't necessarily rec and I used to actually try and reach out to people for reconciliation. I used to message people I'd not talked to in five years, six years, seven years, but they can't give me what I'm searching for no matter what, right? And so it's about how do I help my mind understand what it needs, what release it needs. And so I've written letters to and from myself as myself, as my significant others. And, you know, I have these profound experiences of bringing them there with me. I've done this before and I probably learned it from her, from Elizabeth, um, of just sitting and as if their spirit is with me and talking to them, having that conversation that I need to have that maybe they don't, or maybe they've done it on their own, but it's something to be said. I've known this person. I loved them. They like, I know what they're about. I know their essence, what I valued in them. And I can bring that to my, to the forefront of my mind and talk to it, communicate with it in a real deep sense. And so I think it's so powerful what she does here. And it's been so beneficial to my life as well to be able to do the same thing. And she says like the, the two cool blue souls, right? Because it's the essence, like they did love each other. They are both people who valued one another, who had shared values and sure a lot of other stuff happened and got in the way, but like it's the essence that she cares about that she's dealing with. And, and it's just this sense of calm and she can navigate there. Um, and I think it's just a really powerful, powerful uh, experience that she lets us into. Absolutely. And, you know, I've done that as well. I've done it through meditation. I've had letting go experiences, as I said, in another episode where I've convulsed. My body has physically manifested that letting go. Um, and, you know, she says you can finish the business yourself from within yourself. It's not only possible, it's essential. And it is essential because that's the only time when healing starts. And it's important to give yourself permission to be human. It's important to give yourself, I've learned for myself, it's important that I say, it's okay if I have those moments because they're gonna happen. And I don't let them take me to that dark place anymore. I help let them help me find my light again. Right. And this now, you know, it's interesting that she had to learn to let go of David and then her husband because it was so much deeper, which makes sense. But it's the same idea of don't get mad every time this comes up. Don't get don't fight it, but send it love, send it joy. And she says that experience of her on top of the ashram, that's the place she can always return to now that mm -hmm. she knows that that was a moment of her recognition of their like the deep love they have for one another, even though it was buried under years of divorce and fighting and stuff. She has this more vivid recent moment of, no, what was the essence of our relationship? Why were we together? And she can return to that place when these thoughts come up and that's healthy, that's good. Um, Absolutely. And so it's like, it's a really great place to sort of end up end with right so now she's released david she's released her husband and now we have another 12 chapters in india and it'll be really interesting to see you know where her exploration leads her next as we finish our time at the ashram 
Absolutely. And I look forward to it because I think that where she's come from and where she is right now, it's a beautiful journey. <laughs>